Well, thanks, Sandy, and thanks heaps, Lockie, for doing the Bible reading for us today, mate. Awesome job. Well, hello there, everyone. How are we all going today? Awesome. I'm going well, too. A bit nervous because preaching, well, this is a bit of a first for me, but excited to study God's Word together today. Oh, but before I start, I just better put my glasses on. Wow, there's that many of you out there? I never realised this was like a two-way camera. Now I'm even more nervous. Hey, while we're speaking about glasses, what's the deal with optometrists? I've probably got time, so I'll tell you the story of how I came to own this pair of glasses. Now, I'd never been to the optometrist before, so the first thing to do was to check my eye health. Ah, Mr. Beeching, just come through, please, and rest your chin on the rest on this machine here for me. So I go over, and I do that, but it's all black to start with, but then he tells me to look at this green X. So I'm looking at this green X, and he's like lining up the machine. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, flash, this crazy bright light goes right off in my eye. Now... If you've never experienced this for yourself, you can totally recreate this. Just grab your smartphone camera, put it on flash mode, hold the flashlight on the back of your phone at a distance of about hmm, two millimetres in front of your eyeball and then just take a photo. And then simply just repeat three times in each eye. But then, of course, it gets even worse because that's just the first machine. Okay, Mr. Beeching, all done. Could you please move over to this machine now and rest your chin on the rest here? So I move over and I do that, but I'm waiting for another flash. But it never comes. Instead, I get a pshht. This jet of air comes shooting out of this machine straight into my eye. And then, of course, there's the whole repeat three times in each eye again. Okay, Mr. Beeching, that's great. Just come through and sit down, and if you could just read the letters on the top line of the chart on the wall for me. Right, so I go and sit down, but I'm like, there's a wall in front of me? I can't see a thing. I'm still seeing stars from that first machine and wiping away the tears from that second one. Anyway, I press on regardless, and we continue through all the testing. At the end of which, the optometrist says, Oh... It turns out, Mr. Beeching, you may benefit from wearing glasses. If you'd like to go through to our showroom, one of our assistants will help you pick out some frames. Right, okay. So I go on through and I have a look at all the frames, all of which are ridiculously expensive. I pick out this pair, I pay for them, and I'm told to come back in two weeks to pick up my new glasses. So I walk out of the shop with my wallet considerably lighter than I, when, when I had walked in, thinking to myself, come on, what just happened? I mean, I've just been ripped. I'm a chippy, a carpenter, right? So I fit a stack of doors, internal, external, all shapes and sizes. So what just happened to me at the optometrist is the equivalent of me walking up to some poor person's front door, smashing their door down with my sledgehammer, and then knocking on what's left of their door, saying, Hi, I'm Tim the Chippy. I fit new doors. Looks like you could benefit from a new front door. Would you like to see a glossy brochure? I mean, come on. So there you go. That's how I came to own this pair of glasses. 
Anyway, I should probably get on with it, shouldn't I? And start talking about what I'm meant to be talking about. An amazingly brilliant little book found in our Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. I've recently been deeply convicted and challenged by this little story, mainly through the teaching of Tim Mackey, who is a Hebrew Bible professor and he's one of the co-founders of the Bible Project. If you haven't heard of them, they are a not-for-profit design and animation studio that make short videos, podcasts and other resources about all sorts of things relating to the Bible. Check them out on YouTube. They are absolutely brilliant. I cannot recommend them highly enough. And you just know they're legit because they're not asking for your credit card numbers. All their stuff is free. So Tim Mackey's teachings on Jonah have been a huge influence and inspiration to me. So that's my disclaimer. I've pretty much just stolen his thoughts and ideas, but I can't wait to share what I've learned with you all today. So I invite you to grab your Bibles, turn them on or open them up to the book of Jonah, and we'll get into this amazing story. But first, before we start, Who here has heard of the story of Jonah in the Bible before? Show of hands. Great. So most of you, you know, it's that kid's story about the big fish, yeah? And I'm sure if you've grown up in or around Christian culture, you've probably heard the story many times before in Sunday school or from a kid's book or something like that. In fact, it just so happens I've got a kid's Bible right here. And wouldn't you know it, it has the story of Jonah in it. I'll read it for you now. So just kick back, put your feet up, it's story time. Jonah and the big fish. Talk about our first line, spoiler alert. Jonah was a prophet of God. One day God said to Jonah, go to the big city of Nineveh and tell them to stop doing bad things. But Jonah ran away. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Instead, he got in a boat to sail across the sea. God sent a big storm to stop Jonah. The sailors on the boat were afraid. They thought the boat was going to sink. Jonah told the sailors, My God has sent this storm. If you throw me into the sea, the sea will again become calm. So the the sailors threw Jonah into the raging sea, and instantly the sea became calm. Just then, Jonah saw a big fish coming. Gulp! The fish swallowed Jonah. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but what a friendly looking fish. I like to do a bit of surfing in my spare time, so in my head, when I hear man swallowed whole by fish, it's not a friendly looking fish like this one. It could only be one type of fish. It's a great white shark. Anyway, that's just me. Back to the story. For three days and nights, Jonah was inside the fish. He prayed to God, please forgive me. Then God told the fish to spit Jonah onto dry land. For the second time, God said to Jonah, Go and tell the people of Nineveh to stop doing bad things. This time, Jonah obeyed God. The people in Nineveh were sorry for doing bad things. So God forgave them. Yes, yeah, great story, happy ending. Jonah, what an awesome hero. So there you go. That's what the book of Jonah is all about. Sweet. Job done. Thanks a lot, everyone. Enjoy your week. No, 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 no. This is not at all what this brilliant, amazing little book of Jonah is all about. 
You see, this so-called children's version of Jonah somewhat covers the first three chapters of Jonah. But take a look down at your Bibles. How many chapters does Jonah have? Four, not three. This children's story has simply left out the whole last quarter of the actual book of Jonah. Can we do this? Can we just censor out bits of the Bible? Or should we read the whole thing? No, we really need to read the whole thing. Because if we treat the Bible like a collection of inspirational one-line quotes, or just take the sections of the Bible we like to read out of context, we can pretty much get the Bible to say anything we want. So, when we read the Bible, or any passage in the Bible, not only should we read the whole passage, but if we are to grasp what the author is saying, we also need to identify what kind of text the passage is. Because the Bible's full of all different types of literature. There's stories, both literal and parables, straight-out written instructions like teachings and laws. One-third of the Bible is poetry. That's weird. Who reads that these days? Not me. Letters. Apparently you can read someone else's mail in the Bible. So obviously we need to read these literature types in very different ways if we are to grasp what the author is intending to convey. Okay, so what type of text is Jonah? Well, it's a narrative story about a guy called Jonah. So if we are to really grasp what the author wants to convey, it means we, we must read and reread and meditate on the story in order to discover what the author is revealing through this story. Okay, so Jonah is a narrative story. What's the most common form of narrative story we have in our culture today? Movies, yeah? Now think of your favourite movie. You got one? Okay, great. Now simply just cut off the last half an hour, the last quarter of your favourite movie, and finish the story there, just like our children's Bible has done to the story of Jonah. What has now happened to your movie? It's now a totally different story, isn't it? My wife and I have two young boys, and one of the last movies we took our boys to see was the remake of The Lion King. Did you hear about this? Some really smart dudes with computers all got together and took the classic Disney cartoon and made the whole story look like actual documentary footage, with real animals instead of just cartoon characters. It's amazing. Now, who here is familiar with the story of The Lion King? Awesome! If you're not, sorry, you're going to struggle with this analogy. But let's take the story of the Lion King and simply cut off the last quarter of the movie. What would it do to the story? It would totally destroy it, yeah? And it would tell a totally different story. You'd get Simba meeting up with his buddies, Timon and Pumbaa, and they'd be Akuna Matataring, you know, it means no worries for the rest of your days, that whole thing. Then BAM! Closing credits, and we'd be left like, what was that? It wouldn't make any sense at all. Simba would never get back to Pride Rock, boot out bad old Scar and the hyenas, restore the kingdom, and continue the circle of life. It'd be a totally different story. Okay, so you get the point, yeah? 
But this is actually a massive problem in Christian culture today where we have these stories contained in the Bible which have been so badly distorted and censored into a collection of simple kids' stories that all seem to have the same message of either, as we just heard, stop doing bad things or be a good person or something like that. But by doing this, it robs these brilliant, unified, ancient texts of their true power and meaning intended by their authors. And it vaccinates us from these passages ever having any true power or meaning in our lives. This is a huge problem. And this is especially true for the stories of the Hebrew Bible, where we have stories like Jonah turned into a bland kid story. Because contrary to what our kid story will tell us, Jonah, he's no hero at all. He's actually a horrible, horrible person that has so much pride and prejudice rooted deep within his heart that he is so self-absorbed, he's totally blind to the destruction he's causing to both himself and everyone around him. As you heard, I'm one of the youth leaders here at Freeway, and back in the good old days when we could meet up on Sundays, we were working through a complete Bible overview, starting from Genesis, page 1. And one of the biggest issues we've had to tackle, certainly for me personally anyway, has has been having to totally deconstruct what we think the Bible says or have been told that it says through kids' stories, then reconstruct our beliefs based on what the Bible actually has to say. You see, reading the Bible is a bit like that story of the optometrist I told you at the start. And of course, I exaggerated it to make me sound better and the optometrist worse. But like this kid's version of Jonah, I also chose to censor off the ending to change the meaning of the story. You see, what I didn't tell you was that two weeks later, when my glasses were ready, I go back, I pick them up, I put them on, and wow, this is amazing. I've never been able to see this clearly in my entire life. So now, what does that story at the start really highlight? It now has a completely different message, now that you know the ending, doesn't it? And it's actually pretty shameful, really, because now, instead of painting the optometrist character out to be this fraudulent, money-hungry individual, it highlights what a prideful, arrogant person I really am, who's clearly living in a state of denial that this body of mine is just as youthful as it's always been and now not deteriorating rapidly as time marches on. But not only that, I'm willing to degrade another fellow human who is just honestly doing their job and actually trying to help me rather than admit and realise I'm not as bulletproof as I once thought. So like the story of my glasses, when we pick up our Bibles we need to put our pride and arrogance aside and be attentive to what what the words are actually saying and what the author is intending to reveal through their words, which may be contradictory to what we have been told that they are saying to us through children's literature. We need to realise the author has written the text in a specific language and culture which is not ours and with an intended audience in mind which is not us as Australians living in and around Chelsea in 2020. You see, the scriptures are not written to us. 
They're written for us, not to us. So if we are to fully grasp what the author is actually trying to convey, just like my glasses, there may be a cost involved, as we may need to do some work, as we need to place ourselves into the time and culture of the author's intended audience, which may mean we have to put in some time and effort, read a study Bible, a commentary on the passage, listen to a podcast, research what was happening in history at that time and in that culture, in order to better understand the passage. But when we approach these Bible passages like this and put in the effort, the payoff, it's well worth it. It's amazing, like putting on my glasses for the first time. These texts and stories just come to life and details we've never noticed or been able to see before suddenly burst off the page and start to make sense. It's amazing. So what I want us to do is to approach this story of Jonah as if we were reading it for the first time, to put aside what we think the story says and discover afresh together what the author is actually revealing through this brilliant little book. Okay, you with me? Awesome. Let's go. Now we've already discovered the text is a narrative story, but this story is unlike anything else in the entire Bible. It's almost written like a comic book. Everything is so extreme and over the top in this book as the author uses techniques like satire, exaggeration, sarcasm, and even humor to bring this story to life. What? Jokes in the Bible? Yeah, who knew, right? So here we go. Strap yourselves in and let's get stuck into this amazing story. Jonah chapter one. The word of the Lord. Okay, we need to stop already. That's weird, isn't it? Lord is in all caps. Whoever typed out the Bible must have accidentally hit the caps lock and it wasn't picked up by the editor. No, that's not it. Whenever we see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's our English translators giving us a heads up that the word being translated in Hebrew, the language the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in, is Yahweh, the personal name of God. That's our God, the God we serve. Because there are heaps of other gods mentioned in the Bible, there are other gods mentioned in the story of Jonah. The Israelites, God's covenant people, well, their neighbours all had their own gods. Some had a whole stack of them that they worshipped and had to keep happy. And these are real beings, real gods with real powers. But this story isn't about them. It's about our God, Yahweh. Now, I thought I'd put this up here on the board for all you visual people and to make sure we get this as clear as possible. So when we see Lord in all caps, we know in Hebrew, the word is Yahweh. God's personal name. So what's the meaning of this name Yahweh? Well, Yahweh means literally, he will be. Or we could say in English, he is. Okay, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt back in the book of Exodus, and the people are asking him, 
Who's saving us? Who's leading us out of slavery? Answer, Yahweh. He is. He is our God. He is saving us. Okay, sure, like that works for Moses, but God couldn't use Yahweh, he is, to describe himself, could he? That wouldn't make sense. And it would be bad grammar. And God doesn't do anything badly. So when God is referring to himself, he doesn't use Yahweh, he uses Ehwech. Now, Ehwech means literally, I will be. Or, we could say in English, I am. So you can see here, the base word is the same, but the ya prefix refers to the he, and the eh prefix refers to the I. Seriously, how cool is this? We're learning ancient Hebrew in church right now. But this is so important. This is the amazing clarity glasses moment I was talking about before. Because now that we know this, whenever we read in the New Testament, Jesus referring to himself as I am, we don't think, Jesus, why are you saying that? Why are you being so weird? Now we totally get it. Jesus is calling himself Yahweh. He's saying, Ehweh. It's crystal clear. Jesus, he is Lord. He is God. Okay, so Jesus, there's another name. What does that name mean? Well, Mason covered this in his series on Luke. Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh brings salvation. Of course it does. That makes total sense, yeah? Okay, so what other names are used for Jesus in the Bible? Well, we have names like Emmanuel, which means Yahweh or God with us. We have Christ, which isn't Jesus' last name. He's not the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. Christ is a title, which means anointed one. So you get it, right? I could give you more examples, but just from a couple of the names that we have for God and Jesus, we can see the importance of the meanings of names and that they matter in the Bible. So, if we are to study the Bible faithfully, names and their meanings are something we should pay attention to. Okay, let's get back to the story. The word of Yahweh came to... Okay, we need to stop again. Sorry, but the author has just given us a massive hint, an obvious clue as to what kind of book he is writing. The word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord comes to what kind of people in the Bible? It comes to the prophets. Okay, so what on earth is a prophet? Well, today we think prophet, prophecy, oh, oh no, a prophet must be like a fortune teller or a clairvoyant or something like that. But we'd be wrong. The main role of a prophet in the Bible is simply to speak on God's behalf. They're God's messengers but prophets will occasionally look into the future and discern what God will be doing. And most of the books of the prophets start this exact same way. Just turn forward in your Bibles a couple of pages to the next book of the Bible, the book of Micah. And how does it start? The word of the Lord that came to Micah. 
and we have Hosea and Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Haggai, and the list goes on and on of books of the prophets that start this exact same way. Now, if you've ever read any of the books of the prophets, good on you, because I definitely find them some of the hardest books of the Bible to read and understand, but we'd be expecting to find in Jonah what we find in all the other books of the prophets, a collection of that prophet's words, a poetic prophecy, often containing some really weird vision or dream, or a bit of poetry that's like crazy difficult to understand. But we'd be wrong. Remember, I told you at the start, there's nothing else quite like Jonah in the entire Bible. Instead of getting a collection of Jonah's words, we get a narrative story about the prophet Jonah. Okay, Let's continue. Back to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. (laughs) That's a good one. It's like verse 1 and the author's already cracked a joke. You see, we've already explored the importance of the meanings of names in the Bible. And get this. Jonah's name means dove. Images in the Bible of innocence and purity. And son of Amittai means son of faithfulness. So here we have innocent, pure, son of faithfulness. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Because he's going to turn out to be the most faithless character in this entire story. But also, at this point, we need to place ourselves into the shoes of the author's intended audience, the faithful Israelite people. Because the author just expects, like them, that we know not only this guy Jonah, but our Bibles back to front as well. He expects us to be sceptical of this guy Jonah. Why? Because Jonah has already appeared in the story of the Bible, back in 2 Kings chapter 14. So let's turn back and check out that passage. It's a story about Jeroboam II, a horrible, evil king of Israel. Now, to fit this into the storyline of the Bible, this is after God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, through the 40 years in the desert, and now they're living in the promised milk and honey land God had given them. So it's after David and Solomon, but before God allows the Assyrians and Babylonians to come and destroy and take over the Israelite nation as a result of them turning from God and making super screwed up decisions. So 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 to 25. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. But he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebel Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Garth Hefer. Now, if you're anything like me and you're reading this passage, you're like, Okay, some bad evil king with a weird name took back a bit of land I've never heard of. But then, hey, it's Jonah, the fish dude. He prophesies favor and victory to this evil king. Okay, great. I'm moving on. No, let's try and work out what's really going on here. 
So we've got this really bad king, Jeroboam II. And he was named after Jeroboam I, who was this terrible king who tears apart God's people. He leads the split in the Israelite nation between the northern and the southern tribes. This is not cool. And not only that, he builds two rival temples to God's temple in Jerusalem up in the northern kingdom, and he puts golden calves in them. Come on, he's a king of Israel. He should have read Exodus. It's not cool to build a golden calf. This is not going to go well. But here we have Jeroboam II, and he's named after this dude, and he's making things even worse. He's a really bad king. And Jonah, he's prophesying favorably to this horrible, evil king. Now, sure, we're told it's a prophecy from Yahweh, but later on in the story, the prophet Amos comes along in Amos chapter 6, and Amos actually reverses Jonah's prophecy. Amos prophesies that the people of Israel have gotten so bad that God will allow the Assyrians to come along and wipe out these same territories Jonah has promised to this evil king. So later generations of Israelites reading the book of Jonah, they're definitely going to be sceptical about this guy. I'm not sure they're going to swallow the whole pure, innocent, son of faithfulness line. All right, let's get back to the story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, so this great city of Nineveh, what's the significance of this place? Oh, this city has some significance, all right. In fact, it's the most significant city in the entire ancient world at that time. It's the capital city of the mighty Assyrian Empire, Israel's most hated enemies. The Assyrians were the most brutal, violent and oppressive empire the world had ever seen to that point and were responsible for wiping out ten twelfths, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. They didn't quite manage to capture Jerusalem, Israel's capital, but they pretty much capture every other part of the Israelite nation. And the Assyrians' general practice was to plunder a city, torture and kill the leaders, and deport whoever they wanted of the people back into the Assyrian Empire as slaves. And we'll get into more detail about the Assyrians later in the story. So what does our man Jonah do? Let's see. Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, so it tells us twice here in verse 3. Jonah just turns his back on God and runs away. Well, let's quickly take a look at a map to see what's going on here. So here's Jonah in Jerusalem, and God sends him which way? East to Nineveh, which is in the region of Mosul in Iraq today. But which way does Son of Faithfulness go? Well, first, he goes down to the port of Joppa with the intent to head west to Tarshish in modern-day Spain. But not just west... Tarshish is as far west as you could possibly go in the known world at that time. Remember, 
the world is still flat. The Greek philosophers and Hellenistic astronomers of the later centuries BC haven't come along and discovered the Earth is round yet. If Jonah were to go any further west, he'd fall right off the edge. So here we have Jonah, this prophet, this man of God, who has spoken the very word of Yahweh before. And God is asking him to go and share his grace with the Assyrian Ninevites. But he doesn't just stay where he is. He intentionally turns his back on God and goes in the very opposite direction to where God has called him. What has happened to Jonah? Why is he doing this? Well, maybe he's just scared, and rightly so. The Assyrians were the most brutal empire the world had yet seen. Maybe he thinks they'll just kill him if he shows up in their city. Well, maybe, or could it be, that Jonah just hates these Assyrians so much there's just no way he, he wants them to have any chance at all to find God's grace. Hmm, maybe we'll find out as the story goes on. But either way, we are thinking to ourselves, seriously, how dumb is this guy? What a moron. Jonah, what are you doing? One of the books of the Bible is named after you, for goodness sake. But you're running away from God? What is wrong with him? Everybody knows you can't do that. He's so stupid. Oh, no. And there you go. It's taken this brilliant author only three verses, and we've already fallen headfirst into his clever trap. You see, the second we see ourselves as superior to Jonah, the author has just turned the spotlight from Jonah and onto us. He's just highlighted what flawed humans we really are. Because just like Jonah, we are just as prone to run. Run from an invitation to grow, to change, to bring and show God's grace to others. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, I bet there's some part of our lives where God is calling us to grow or inviting us into something far greater than ourselves. And we're like, nope. No way. I'm not doing that. And you guys, this passage has brought such a profound challenge to my own life. You see, Mason first asked me to preach about four years ago. And sure, I didn't book a flight to Madrid. And I'm really thankful God didn't send, send a giant fish to swallow me whole. Being a surfer, I sure gave him plenty of opportunities. But instead, God just placed it on my mind, constantly there for the past four years, gently prodding and poking me to grow in this area. But for most of that time, I was like, no way. I couldn't go up and preach. Not me, Lord. You see, being up here public speaking, I certainly don't find it comfortable. It's really scary. But that calling never went away. And finally, after four years and a lot of prodding, well, here we are. But what God has revealed to me through the hundreds of hours of preparation and investigation into this brilliant book of Jonah, it's been one of the most exciting, rewarding and wonderful things I've ever done. You see, just like Jonah, I was a kunamatadering. We both were living the good life, no worries for the rest of our days, or so we thought. 
Can you believe this? Mason has entrusted me to preach, and I'm telling you Jonah was a kuda matadarin. This could well be the first and last time I'm up here preaching. But seriously, have a think about this. What's really going on here? Jonah, just like Simba, has a calling on his life to bring restoration to the kingdom. But this definitely doesn't fit into Jonah's vision of where his life should be going. His vision of the good life. So he runs. So here we are. We're three verses into the book of Jonah and the author in his brilliance has already deeply convicted us to take a thorough look at the motives of our hearts. That could it be that our own version of the good life may not be that good at all? And that Yahweh, through his love and grace, is calling us to something far greater and more rewarding than anything we could ever ask or imagine. And that he's asking us to step out in faith into the scary unknown. And so if we fast forward the story of the Bible from here, this leads us to one man, another chippy, Jesus, who is that human we could never be on our own the one whose vision of life was never out of step with that of the Father's. And what does he ask us to do? To leave our version of life behind and come, follow me. So I don't know where you're at today. You might be exploring what being a Christian is all about, tuning in online, checking things out. That's awesome. Welcome to Freeway. So this is really what it's all about. Humbly coming before God and acknowledging that Yahweh, He is the one far greater than ourselves out there and that our version of the good life is really no life at all. But letting that die before Him and His Son Jesus and simply trusting through faith that the life He has in store for us is true life and life to the fullest, which may be the scariest thing we ever have to do but will be the greatest decision we'll ever make and lead us through his grace to a richer form of life that he has in store for us. And for those of us, if we identify as a follower of Jesus, this should be a continuous process, every day coming before God and Jesus, leaving our versions of the good life behind and trusting by faith to follow him. Wow. This is no kid's story, hey. It's a story for us all. But look at this. We're out of time and we've covered three verses. So this is scary, probably for you as well as me, because we can't just censor off the rest of the story, like that kid's book we read at the start. We need to do the whole story of Jonah. So I'll be back next week to continue on as we investigate what else God is revealing for us through this brilliant story of Jonah. Let's pray. Yahweh God, thank you for this amazing story of Jonah. We pray this week and indeed for the rest of our lives that the truths revealed for us through this story become real to us, that we may be attentive to the areas in our lives in which you are calling us to grow and that through your strength we choose to follow and not run. Amen.